Remember me, though I have to travel far. Remember me, each time you hear a sad guitar. Know that I'm with you, the only way that I can be. Until you're in my arms again. exciting. It's very exciting. So exciting. I'm very excited. I am Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. What a good website. It's great. You guys should really check it out regularly. Joining me today. Yeah. Now that he's finished taking Dante for his latest round of booster shots. Keep him healthy. You have to. Keep him healthy. It's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Woo! So wonderful to be back here with you. Ah, this feels right. Feels like coming home again. Jason? Yeah. Binge Mode is back. So I hear. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. That's right. And like the Night King's army, we've risen from our (laughs) 67-episode Game of Thrones podcast binge like Fox the Phoenix. Hey! We've emerged from the ashes in Dumbledore's office. Yeah, don't worry about Fox. He's fine. He's he looks good. he looks a little skinny and old, but that just happens. Beautiful and very strong yeah, tail yeah. feathers. Just let we him are let him die. It's fine. Reborn. Yeah. And ready to podcast. Like Hector. We've refused. That's right. To be forgotten. Sniffing every pack of chorizo. Delicious. <laughs> I love chorizo. <laughs> And belting, remember us, with every not so subtly coded tweet. A lot of lightning emojis. Subtlety is not our strong suit. Never has been. Never has been. And now we are here strumming our guitars to announce two things. First, Binge Mode Weekly, where every Thursday we'll be diving deep into the topics obsessing us at the moment. Might be a show, might be a book, a movie, a sporting event, the latest series of slacks from Ringer staffers about their thirst for HQ referral coach shares. I'm concerning. Ready. I love trivia. I cannot get involved in this. It's concerning. Yeah. I'm worried about the the stamina and sanity of of the Ringer as at large. All, as as we always are. As always. Who knows what topics we might cover, Mal? Who knows? We yeah. do know one thing though. Yes. Because our second announcement is that we are thrilled to Truly open thrilled. this owl post and tell you. <laughs> That in spring of 2018, we will be doing binge mode Harry Potter. Ba, ba, ba. Turning this very podcast studio into our own Ooh. room of requirement to fully explore a series that is as dear to us as Quidditch is to Harry himself. That's right. He's willing to give everything to catch that snitch. Catch it. In your mouth if you have to. Listen, break the arm, whatever you got to do. No bones. We open at the close, guys. That's right. You will be able to find... All of these shows on the same binge mode feed that you are hopefully already subscribed to from the Game of Thrones days. So stay subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please also follow our new Twitter handle. It's at binge underscore mode. Again, at binge (laughs) underscore 
mode. It's just binge mode with an underscore between the two words. Exactly. So it's pretty simple. You should well, be able to find well it. Well put. Come follow us and check out that Twitter feed for for updates and, you know, hopefully some pretty creative gift we're pretty usage. Good, we're pretty good at the internet and we'll our, our, our ringer people are pretty good at the internet. So we hope to thrill and entertain you there. Today, we're kicking off Binge Mode Weekly by exploring one of the films captivating us right now, Coco. Yes. Importantly, the first Pixar movie centered on a Latino character in Latino culture and a masterful, truly masterful addition to the animation studio's rich canon. Beautiful. We loved this movie. We're really excited to talk about it. Requisite spoiler warning, as there will be for basically everything we discuss (laughs) at any point in time. Yeah. We will be going deep. On details from Coco and from numerous other Pixar films, we're going to say which film we're about to talk about before we talk about it. So, hold on tight to Pepita, or your spirit guide of choice, because it's time to break down Coco and Pixar's other masterful coming-of-age tales. Jason! Yeah! It's time to seize our moment. That's right. But... Before we dive into today's theme, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Coco by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road or, in this particular case, our very own Marigold Bridge. Years ago, Melda Rivera, the matriarch of the Rivera clan, was married to a musician. Her husband left her and their daughter Coco to pursue his dream, and he never returned. In order to support her family, Imelda took up shoemaking. Her family, against all odds, thrived, and the cobbling craft was passed down, along with an edict. No music! Mm. No music, guys! That's a tough break. Nothing. Tough. Fast forward to the present. Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead festival when families honor their ancestors. 12-year-old Miguel Rivera, the scion of the Rivera clan, is on the cusp of being brought into the family shoemaking business. He's not particularly thrilled about it because, of course, there is one problem. You know what it is. He dreams of being a musician. He idolizes the legendary Ernesto de la Cruz, the greatest musician in history. This naturally leads to a break with his family, an acrimonious one. After noticing that the guitar that the man in the picture with his great-great-grandmother, Imelda, is holding is very similar to the one that Ernesto de la Cruz has on the covers of his albums, he comes to believe that Ernesto was his great-great-grandfather. Now, desperate To play in a local talent show, Miguel breaks into Ernesto's tomb to steal his guitar. This leads him to pass through the barrier of life and death, entering the realm of the dead. Miguel walks over the Marigold Bridge into the land of the dead, searching for Ernesto de la Cruz, where he hopes to introduce him to himself as his ancestor. He meets Hector, a down-on-his-heels skeleton, who offers to help Miguel in exchange for Miguel bringing Hector's picture out to the land of the living so that the last person who remembers him, who we later find out is his daughter and Miguel's great-grandmother, Coco, will keep his memory alive. Because one of the rules of the land of the dead is, if you are forgotten in the land of the living, you disappear from the land of the dead. Miguel discovers that Ernesto is a fraud after meeting him. He is, in fact, a murderer who did not write the songs that he's famous for. He, in fact, stole them from his songwriting partner, who turns out to be Hector. Never meet your heroes, guys. Never, ever meet your heroes. (laughs) Truly bad. Hector is, in fact, Miguel's real great-great-grandfather. Hector and Miguel's ancestors, including Hector's ex-wife, Imelda, Miguel's great-great-grandmother, expose Ernesto as a murderer and help Miguel pass back into the world of the living, where he sings Hector's great song, Remember Me, to his great-grandmother, Coco, rekindling the memories of her father, ensuring Hector's survival in the afterlife. Fast forward one year, 
Hector is allowed into the world of the living to visit with his family. Miguel is a musician. And Ernesto de la Cruz's once grand tomb has been defaced. Also Dante. Dante the dog is now a spirit animal. Major shouts to Dante, who would not be kept off the Marigold Bridge, (laughs) followed Miguel into the land of the dead. Who knew that they could do that? Well, I like to think that animals are with us always, and this was proof. Shouts to Dante. Wonderful. Mal. Yeah. When there's no one left in the living world who remembers you, you disappear from this studio. It'll never happen. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) It will never happen, my friend. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of Frida's papaya prop by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode of Binge Mode Weekly is coming of age in the Pixar universe. Pixar's best movies recognize that the questions that define a person's life at an early age are deeply meaningful, even formative. Questions like, am I accepted by my friends? By my family? Do I want to be? Who do I want them to think I am? Who do I want to be? Will anyone love that version of me? Am I good at anything? Do I need to be? How can I make my life matter? And will anyone remember me when I'm gone? The answers to those questions define the course of your life. And getting to the point where you actually begin to start asking those kinds of questions and to come to terms with the implications of those questions defines the great coming-of-age stories of our time. Why do we all cherish stories like To Kill a Mockingbird and A Separate Piece and The Catcher in the Rye and, of course, Harry Potter? It's because they explore something that is at once extremely specific to the characters in those tales, but also utterly universal. And Coco and the other Pixar movies that we're going to focus on today, namely Wally Up, Inside Out, the Toy Story series, and Finding Nemo, grapple with those questions exquisitely. Whether or not you've ever placed photos of your ancestors on an ofrenda, Miguel's story will resonate with you, and honestly, how could it not? Coco takes the strings that every other masterful Pixar movie attached to a balloon and ties them together into a bundle forceful enough to lift not only a house, but our hearts, Mal. Mm. And so today we're going to examine what makes these Pixar movies work by exploring the five key components of a quintessential coming-of-age story that are present in Coco and pairing those elements with the five previous Pixar movies that also skillfully considered them. Think of it like the five emotions from inside out. Parts of a whole, utterly complex on their own, but most potent when united. First up, identity. Mm. It's a key component of Coco and Wally and all Pixar movies, really, but let's, let's focus on those. Love Wally. I love Wally. Really, truly love more. So let's, let's start with the power of legacy and how that shapes or inhibits identity. Legacy is a powerful organizing force. The traditions that Miguel's family adhere to are strict, to the point of being really draconian, no music at all. Right. No singing, no humming, no like air drumming, nothing. No tapping your feet. And there's reason for this custom, which we mentioned. Music almost tore the Rivera family apart. Imelda Rivera's husband abandoned the family, she thinks, and she was forced to provide for her daughter on her own. She managed to do that, and the edict of no music was passed down. And so it's hard to break with a tradition that you can really argue is the reason that a family survive. But of course, music calls to Miguel. This is the core tension at the heart of Coco. It sinks him. He can't help it. And to make matters worse or better, Miguel is really good at it. Kids got pipes. He's truly talented. He taught himself to play guitar. He built one in an attic. 
taught himself how to sing, how can he reconcile these creative passions with the familial traditions that view those passions as truly destructive? And how can he follow his heart and not lose the family that loves him? This tension between tradition and progress is one that a person is going to grapple with early in life. How do I be my own person? Am I a special person in the world that's full of other people? Right. Um, and this idea of legacy is, of course, incredibly Thronesian, very Taiwanian. I can hear his voice now. Legacy. What is legacy to Tywin? It's what you pass down to your children and your children's children. It's what remains of you when you're gone. Of course, Tywin's downfall was always his failure to understand that the inherent irony in his life is he was so obsessed with thinking about his family's future that he never paid close enough attention to his family's present, never truly valued his children as individuals. He saw them as, you know, pillars to uphold this great house, not as people. And Miguel's family is really doing something similar. The disdain for music and the desire to pass down that very specific understanding is so blinding that Miguel has to slip away, both metaphorically and literally, out of their plane of existence into the land of the dead. Their vision of their family's legacy is so clear and so rigid that they can't see Miguel as the person that he is and that he wants to be. In the case of the robots and Wally, legacy and identity means something slightly different. It's not a set of traditions passed down or a responsibility to uphold a name. It's literally a set of instructions. Wally and Eve's identities are totally defined by the instructions that have been programmed into them. Wally was purpose-built to do a simple, menial job to process garbage into more manageable garbage bricks. Got to have it in brick form. That way it's stackable. That way you can make a tower <laughs> right. of garbage instead of just having garbage it, on the ground. Right, I can Huge see. Huge difference. Yeah, it's a big, big difference, guys. Thus cleaning the earth bit by bit so humanity could one day return. Eve was designed to act as an autonomous probe, searching the toxic ruins of Earth for any sign that life has returned. Because they're robots, Pixar was able to do something really interesting, like project the characteristics of a range of identities onto them. Wally, on the most basic surface level, is presented as a male. Like, they talk about him as he. He's got these boxy, stout right angles and these rough, grasping hands. And we think of him as romantically in love with Eve. At the same time, Wally is given traits that you would associate with parental figures, older figures, adults, both male and female. When Eve asked Wally, directive, what is your directive? Right. Essentially, what is your purpose for existing on this earth? He scoops up garbage, pops it into himself, and pops this little brick out of his belly. In other words, Wally, when asked what his reason for existing is, he gives birth, metaphorically. Wally is older than Eve in the sense that he's an older model. He's in constant need of repairs when we first meet him. He has to repair his little track. And he loves old movies. Eve, on the other hand, is at first glance uh, female, clearly, her name, Eve, her voice. And Wally's love interest, she's got that rounded figure and those dainty floating fingers. Those dainty machine yes, gun fingers. we will get to that. At the same time, she's also an avatar for something like a teenage character. She's moody and quick to anger, transitioning from this placid, freeform flying to shooting laser beams out of her fingertips <laughs> at, at anything without warning. And Wally is, of course, a technological being, but his construction harkens back to an earlier time on Earth. Eve is so advanced that her technology seems more a natural part of her. And you can see in that the, the kind of technology generation gap that, that exists between parents and their kids. Uh, she can fly. She can shoot those laser beams. Her eyes are digital, not mechanical. And when Wally presents Eve with the plant that he found in the garbage ruins, she shuts down 
inexplicably like a sullen teenager while he watches over her through sandstorms and rain. And on one level, you could see that as like a robot having a crush on another robot, but it's also quite parental in the way he protects her and stands over her and is just watching over her while she's completely silent. Like in Coco, the robots of Wally must discover whether they are more than what they are built for. And in both of these movies, there's this real dissonance in play, this duality. You know, Miguel is simultaneously trying to forge his own path, Mm -hmm. like very aggressively, but also to connect with his roots. And when Miguel says, I'm not like the rest of my family early on in the film as he's setting out to (laughs) polish shoes and sneak into the mariachi plaza. It's a boast. At the film's outset, his identity is built not only on the belief that he's different, but on the understanding that he's proud to be different. He thinks it's a good thing that he's different. You know, he is tortured that he can't play music. Yes. But he's not actually tortured by his desire to play. That's a source of joy for him, not a source of shame. And that's in part because he knows that while this passion for music might make him an outcast in his present-day family in the Rivera's cobbling shop, his roots really justify and explain it. It's in the blood. Yes. And so music is forbidden in his home, but it's also in his blood. And that's a incredibly fascinating contradiction for a young person to have to try to comprehend that the basically the thing that challenges you every single day is also a core part of your DNA. The thing that repels you from your family also draws you to it. Your identity is at once who your family once was and what it's telling you that you're never allowed to be. There is an inherent contradiction there that is really confusing for a young person. And that idea, what you're supposed to be versus what you want to be, is key in all of the best coming-of-age stories. You know, we we hear this, this term, children's stories, kids' stories. Right. And we hear that label tossed around to describe Pixar movies, certainly, Harry Potter, and a lot of other things that we love. And the thing that angers us, it's not the term itself, it's when it's used dismissively. Because, first of all, if you cannot acknowledge that these stories are as rich and rewarding and revealing for adults as they are for kids, and really that part of their true magic is how they deal with the shifting meaning and perspective depending on the age or station of the person consuming them, you're worse than Ernesto. Or murderer, by the way. Go get crushed under a bell. (laughs) But more crucially and more centrally, that kind of hand wave, that uh, kid stuff, hand wave, it really fails to recognize that the nucleus of understanding in life is forged during childhood. And that that's important and good. Like an elemental part of that nucleus is the moment when you first ask yourself whether it's okay to be someone other than who you're quote-unquote meant to be, who you're supposed to be. You know, if you come from a family of cobblers like Miguel, are you bound to that fate? Is that it? That's your life? You don't have a say in it? You know, if you're a robot tasked with cleaning the rotting planet so that humans can one day return, are you resigned to crunching every single object that you come across? You know, what happens when you see something that, makes you question your daily reality. What happens when you pull a VHS of Hello, Dolly off the heap and you bring it to your trailer and you watch it for the first time and it awakens something inside of you? What happens when that choice alters the course of your life? 
And sometimes identity is contextual. The blob people mm. aboard the axiom are defined by them, their circumstances more than their free will. It's truly never occurred to them to be something other than what they are, to live in some way other than how they are. I would just like to quickly note sure. that I basically am like one degree removed from being one of those blob people. <laughs> like I had, I had a moment no, watching not. this where I was like, wow, I order all my meals on Postmates. Listen. I'm always staring directly into nah. some sort of screen. I basically only wear blue and red t-shirts. <laughs> Concerning. I don't know what my bone density is right now, but it can't be good. You're robust and vital. We'll You're, you look healthy. We'll see. As I've told you numerous times, I am truly in awe of your ability to, much like Wally, yeah. scoop garbage into yourself <laughs> I- and like maintain what is really a wonderful, healthy look. No, 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 no. I thought you were going to say, as I've told you many times, pizza is not actually a plant. You cannot grow it in the ground. <laughs> Carry on. When the blob people are forced to confront their reality, which includes the reality that they can change their reality, they realize that they can be extremely Oliver Queen voice, something else, someone else, and they adjust their expectations and intentions accordingly. Meanwhile, Ernesto's entire identity is a lie, a fiction he created by robbing someone else of what he'd earned. Realizing that such a thing is possible is a dark and difficult moment in a person's life, but it's an imperative one. And understanding that Evil is possible, and it stems from these really human emotions, and that evil is not what awaited him back home. This realization altered Miguel's perception in a way that altered his identity and thus the course of his life. And how about Hector and Mama Melda? They were defined not only in life but in death by a misunderstanding, which is truly tragic. Imelda thought that her husband had abandoned his family when, in fact, he had been murdered for the beautiful songs that went on to touch the hearts of millions of people. That is terrible and tragic. Our identities are so fragile that they're subject to being redefined by a single turn of events. Terrifying. Um, This is truly terrifying. (laughs) And ironically, it's that realization that identities and reputations are so fragile that drives Ernesto in the afterlife to be truly an evil man. Such a great dude when he was alive. So, <laughs> real, real heel turn. You know, and then there's Wally. Wally. Eve. I love them. Eva. And they know that they have a purpose. Right. But they don't see themselves as lines of code who are just performing a function assigned to their models. They're not acronyms, they're right. beings. They have feelings, they have desires. And crucially, they have ever evolving senses of self. Mm-hmm. So, In other words, they have identities. They do. And those identities mark them as other. You know, they're the robots on the poster. They're the robots that even the robots in the repair shop are like, what's going on with these robots, right? They are apart. They're different. They're separate. And that is, of course, one of the things that makes these stories so special. You know, whether it's through a young boy and his street dog running across a bridge of magical petals or two conscious robots dancing across the stars together. The best Pixar stories really remind us that choosing to be different isn't shameful. It's the whole point. It's the goal. And there's empathy. Mm, Love empathy. Absolutely (laughs) vital to every Pixar movie. But let's talk about Coco and Up and the fear of being forgotten. One of the most powerful ideas that Coco explores is this fear that people will forget about you when you're gone, when you're out of their presence, when you're gone from this world. When Hector takes Miguel to get a guitar from Chicharron, Miguel doesn't just wind up poking through a pal's hammock-based pawn shop. He gets a front-row glimpse of one of life's defining fears, the idea that 
even in the afterlife, even when you've passed from this world into what should be your rest, life can be fleeting. And that is a haunting thing to consider, the idea that your own actions aren't enough to ensure eternal life, but rather that your fate across time and space is tied to how other people hold you in their memories. That's a hallmark to the weight of empathy. And it's also kind of like the driving creative force in human history. Like, why do we tell stories? Why do people create anything at all? Right. Because they want something to live in this world after they are gone. If you, I mean, you look at the oldest cave paintings, there's always a handprint or something like that. And or that's a, ch like, a chalk drawing of the Night King. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that just happens to be there. But, the, you know, this is like a, it's emblematic of the human impulse to say, I was here. At this point in time, don't forget about me. And until you understand how the fragility of mortality motivates people, you can't fully empathize with them because you can't fully know your own self. And if you don't know yourself or what it means to be human, how can you ever hope to understand another person? This is where Pixar's ability to play with how a member of the audience responds to certain stimuli, depending on that person's age and experience and station, is really brilliant. Their ability to modulate that message through different ages. It matches the characters. Miguel and Hector both witness Chicharron vanish, but they perceive it differently. Just as a child and a parent watching the film would, for Miguel and the child in the theater, it's, it's clarity, an eye-opening glimpse into a universal fear. For Hector and the parent sitting next to the kid, it's confirmation, that ever-creeping shadow of a terror that's come to dominate his existence. When Chicharron disappears, Hector's sad for a second, then he takes a swig of tequila and he's like, yep, that's what happens. That's me. That's, that's waiting for me. That's waiting for us. Sharing this moment helps them share that perspective. Their reactions remain their own, but they come to an understanding of what's informing how the other is choosing to behave. And that's powerful knowledge to gain. It's what Taylor from The Bachelor would call emotional intelligence, friends. Emotional intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Pride of Johns Hopkins. Yeah. You know, recognizing what motivates other people and why those motivations are valid, right. that is a core part of being human yes. and it is a huge part of growing up maturation is certainly inward looking mm -hmm. but it's also largely fueled by gaining some sort of enhanced understanding of why other people yes. think and feel and act in certain ways in other words by empathy yeah. and what's so truly astounding about up and what makes it a real classic is that it takes this core part of any coming of age story and applies it not only to the kid yeah. but to the adult Adult, yes. Which is just a master stroke. This is really one of Pixar's most potent reminders and really surprising like insights to date in its films. It's not just about childhood. Right. You can continue to come of age as you age. Yes. There's no end to coming of age. Right. There's no fixed start date or a fixed end date. This isn't something that begins and right. concludes. It's it's messy and it's unpredictable, just like life. And Carl thought that his life was going to go a certain way. You know, he found Ellie. He found his soulmate. He found his purpose. He found his co-pilot on the spirit of adventure. And Ellie wanted to go to Paradise Falls more than anyone had ever wanted to do anything, yeah. right? And that made Carl want to take her there more than anyone had ever wanted to do anything. And their desires were shared, and so was their life. And it was beautiful, and it contained joy and sorrow and all of the multitudes in between. Empathy can be very clarifying, mm -hmm. but it can also be blinding. And that's part of what is so interesting here. Carl's empathy for Ellie was so all-consuming that when yeah. it was ripped away from him 
in brutal undeniably one of the saddest montages in cinematic history a brilliant montage that will absolutely destroy you and the theme of up is everywhere in every scene of that montage there's always a balloon ellie collapses going up a hill it's brutal brutal Brutal, brutal, brutal. And when his empathy for Ellie was ripped away from him, he was left basically like living as an isolationist, you know, willfully depriving himself of the kind of contact with other people that is inherently necessary to caring about other people at all. And, you know, the construction worker that Carl boings on the head with his walker, you know, that to Carl, that's not not a real person, right? right? With real problems and real motivations that are leading him to direct that truck, admittedly poorly, and right into the Ellie handprint mailbox. He's just an obstacle. He's just an obstacle. Russell is not this darling boy who might have his own pain and his own grief, you know, desperate to earn his father's approval one wilderness badge at a time. He's an annoyance. He's someone to be tricked and thus removed. Hey, go find the snipe for him. Get out of my way. It doesn't matter that Carl never wanted to open his heart and thus his life to Russell or Kevin or Doug. It matters, this is what's so interesting, that just being around them, just witnessing their desires and their fears, soaking up the things that define their lives, the sources of their joy, their sorrow, caused him to decide to. He found empathy just by being around them. And when he did, he really found his own humanity again. Miguel spent every day of his life viewing his family as a roadblock. They don't want me to play music and their reasons aren't good enough because they're not my reasons. Miguel was ultimately right to follow his passion, but his pursuit stemmed from a place of stubbornness and perhaps selfishness. We'll get to that later. Only when he finds empathy does he also find freedom, and that's in large part because he can't get through to his family until he really understands the source of that family pain. Why are they asking me to give up my dream of playing music? Why? Miguel's mistaken belief that De La Cruz is his great-great-grandfather makes for a poignant twist when he and Hector realize the truth. But the real breakthrough comes from understanding why Hector is so desperate to get his photo on an ofrenda and why Mama Imelda and her progeny are so desperate to perpetuate a rule cast down so long ago. And perspective. Of course, the problem with so long ago is that things change. Yes. And, and empathy is tied up in that kind of perspective that can only come from understanding how that change shaped a person's life. Carl's not just grumpy because the construction bros suckered him into surrendering the house that represents all the promise his life once held, that represents his wife herself. He's a shell deprived of that driving force of his life and, and surrounded by reminders of his own inadequacy, of his failure, of the life that they didn't lead. Right. The picture of young Ellie pilot's cap on her head or, or the mantelpiece painting of their clubhouse perched beside the falls don't bring Carl joy. They mock him. They accuse him with each glance of failing to make good on his own promise to bring her to that place. And his gruff demeanor masks really a, a deep pain, which is why that moment when he when he lashes out at, con- at the construction worker is, is truly shocking. You see the regret on his face when he realizes what he's become. Carl's pain fuels him so fully that he's numb to anyone else's pain, really. What changes? He rediscovers empathy when Carl realizes that the album Ellie made back when she pinned that soda cap onto his lapel isn't an empty taunt devoid of snapshots and snippets from the memories they were supposed to make, but instead a lovingly curated ode to the humbler 
but really no less meaningful memories that they actually did make, the wedding photos, the photos of picnics. His empathetic impulse unlocks once again. Beautiful moment. Truly Beautiful moment. Truly one of the great tearjerkers in movies. <laughs> Extreme, lot of tears. Also, why did we not flip through the album earlier than this? That's a good note for <laughs> Carl. It is, it is, isn't it? Maybe he's one of those readers who's always afraid of getting a spoiler from a chapter title if he looks too far ahead. I guess. You know? But there's, there's something there to that yeah. question and that idea, which is that he was so certain of his own failure. Right. He, he didn't even consider the possibility that something was waiting there for him, that something actually had gone in a fashion that meant maybe as much or more to Ellie than right. what they had originally intended. And and part of that is because things change. That's right. You brought up change, and that idea of change is our, our third element here in a classic coming-of-age tale. And we see that a lot in Coco. We also are forced to grapple with change heavily in Inside Out, one of our other favorite Pixar movies. And a big idea that these films explore is adjusting your expectations. Core, a core experience of growing up. Part of life. Part of life, no matter how old you are. You know, one of the most intriguing lines in Coco is the quote, no one was going to hand me my future. It was up to me to reach for my dream, grab yeah. it tight, and make it come true. Now, obviously, we learn <laughs> yeah. that this De La Cruz line is masking some extremely sinister quite sinister <laughs> implications. Like, we're not telling you guys to go murder people, but you know, for Miguel though, that idea certainly before he knows the truth behind it, it's everything. It gives him the courage to actually try to make a change in his life. You know, choice and change, they're directly tied in with each other. We're going to talk about choice more in a couple minutes. You're not allowed to be the thing you want to be or do the thing that you love to do. Fix it for yourself right. because no one else is going to fix it for you. And Dale Cruz, you know, might be a miserable monster, but he's kind of onto something here. Again, Cannot condone right. murder. Don't murder, guys. Don't poison your friends. Draw the line there. Draw the line. Maybe draw the line like <laughs> for a, a lot further back. shades right. before murder. <laughs> but there is a truth there, which is basically people aren't just waiting around to give you what you right. want. You have to work for it. And we see this realization start to dawn on Riley, the kid in Inside Out. This idea of needing to take chances, of needing to risk something, to leave your comfort zone. You know, she doesn't want to be in San Francisco, no. and so she decides not to be. And that is a complicated decision that has heavy ramifications. Watching the five emotions that define who Riley is fundamentally alter as a yeah. result of this change in her life. It's one of the most poignant explorations yet of what makes us human, what makes right. us feel and act the way that we feel and act. There is a really compelling cause and effect question here to consider. You know, do you as a person respond differently to circumstances in your life because you've emotionally matured? Yeah. Or do you emotionally mature because the circumstances in your life change and force you to? And Coco and Inside Out help us see that those ideas are not mutually exclusive. You cannot separate your feelings from the context of nope. your life. But you can choose a new context, or you can at least choose to exist in a new way within the context that you find yourself. These are complex ideas, and, and complex mixed emotions are part of 
the story that Inside Out is telling you. The idea of core memories is once simple and extreme. Are there truly, truly just a handful of moments in our life that define us forever? Again, what these films do so brilliantly is say both yes and no to that question. Uh, they present it in a simple way that a child would understand, but also provide enough shades of gray that will fascinate imaginations as that child ages and will interest an adult. Hockey Island, Ugh. Friendship Island, Goofball Island, these concrete <laughs> palaces and glass orbs aren't just lining the recesses of Riley's mind. They are forging her sense of self, creating her identity. Think about the fact that Pixar chose to center a kid's movie on the idea that four of the five core emotions fueling your personality are negative. Mm -hmm. Anger, fear, disgust, and of course, sadness. The movie's masterstroke is embracing the reality that sadness isn't something to try to hide in a circle or, or behind a manual. It's as fundamental to who we are as joy is. That's really an incredible moment in this movie. When you realize all these emotions, no matter how negative, have a role to play in making you you. Why is joy supreme, though? Because we prize it, we cherish it, and crucially, we can't recognize it unless we come to learn what those other four feelings are. You can't have joy if there's no context for joy. Joy is precious because it's rare and because we crave it, but sadness is part of life, and acknowledging that is part of coming of age. It's part of being human. The film acknowledges that sadness and joy are interconnected in stark and physical fashion. Riley's core memories were pristine and glowing gold, joy, pure and unadulterated. Her new ones are mixed, a swirl of blue and gold that represents change and growth in the messy, complex, complicated nature of life. Everything is interconnected, including our own feelings. These were beautiful moments, joyful moments when they happened. What happens when you look back on them? It's not quite the same, but that's part of being a person. And we quickly have to talk about Bing Bong, who represents, once again, the fear of being forgotten. The twist here is that he represents the very real acknowledgement that being forgotten is part of life, part of growing up and changing. And that's not only okay, sort of, kind of, it's okay. It happens. It's real life, man. What can you do? But it's sometimes essential. If, you, if you're Woody or Buzz, who we'll get to in a minute, or Hector, and you're the one facing that fear, it's truly crippling, truly painful. But if you're Bing Bong, you can choose to change your own circumstances in order to change someone else's. It's hard to overstate how truly brilliant it is for the new core memories to be yeah. blue and gold. Yeah. Like, it is such a physical manifestation of the change that's occurring in your life as you age. I, I, I really love that. Love it. The idea that something's so core and fundamental to who you are that it is labeled core memory right. can shift Yes, as your life shifts. Love that. We talked about how Riley made some choices that led to this change or that were responses to this change and how choice and change are really interconnected. So let's talk about choice. Coco and, of course, the Toy Story series really explore the idea of choice and all of the ramifications. Part of choosing is being an individual. And individualism is following your heart, your creative passions, come what may. It's an evergreen notion, this really rich text for stories and daydreams through the ages. You know, Miguel yearns to express himself through music, despite the wishes of his family. And in the end, he still follows that dream. He still makes that choice. And what would this movie be if he didn't, right? What right. would the conflict be? What would the tension be? It's kind of boring, as a story or as your own life, if you don't ever choose to do something complicated. And Miguel's dedication to his creative path leads him 
to break into a tomb. Yeah. To break in and entering, guys. Steal a guitar that is held up as this totem yeah. to this icon. Quick aside here, the gold tooth on the guitar and yeah. Hector's gold tooth. Yeah. What a beautiful, subtle bit of foreshadowing yes. about who Good he stuff. really is. Love that. And that leads Miguel to break away from this family that while these edicts are misguided, these people love him. Truly you love know? him. And they love him in a way that seems in these moments almost damaging, yeah. right? In the land of the dead, Miguel lies. He, in some ways, is as bad as the people he's running right. away from. He is so blinded by his beliefs and his desires that he has to kind of go back on what he's told other people is okay. The scenes where he's lying to Hector yeah. pose a really interesting question that really any creative person, any person who's driven by passions, should ask him or herself on a regular basis. At what point does individualism become selfishness? We ask ourselves that every time we sit down to record one of these podcasts. <laughs> and we stretch into the 80-minute mark. Agency. The Toy Story series built Pixar as a studio, and most of the stylistic moves that the studio would become known for were present in 1995's Toy Story. An underappreciated aspect of Pixar's mastery of the form, to me, is their understanding of the way size defines a child's identity. When you're a child, you are constantly reminded that this world was not built for you. Everything is out of your reach. Chairs are like huge thrones. Doorknobs are at head level or higher. Children have agency over nothing, really. No aspect of their lives. Adults then, who one hopes protect and love their children, tell them what to do and when to do it. When to sleep, when to eat, when to brush their teeth. And they take on a godlike stature in a child's life. But everything in Toy Story and most Pixar films is filmed from a child's perspective. With Andy mostly as the largest character in the story. Projecting personalities onto anthropomorphic toys flips the child-parent dynamic in really fascinating ways. Buzz Lightyear and Woody live to please Andy. Buzz is the new toy on the block, and he has novel features like springable wings and recorded lines that he can speak. Woody is a cloth and wood puppet, one of Andy's oldest, if not the oldest toy. The toys become siblings then, vying for Andy's affection in their own ways. In this way, the impenetrable motivations of adults and their godlike capriciousness is brought down to the level that a child can understand. And what about consequences? By all appearances, the later Nesso de la Cruz is a great man, a legend. His songs are timeless, ensuring that he will never be forgotten by anyone in the world. In the afterlife, he lives like a king, holding court from a giant tower, which dominates the skyline of the land of the dead. He's also, as we have mentioned, a vile murderer Yep, who, <laughs> who killed his songwriting partner, Miguel's great-great-grandfather, stole his songs and passed them off of his own. In the end, though, even in the afterlife, Ernesto cannot escape the reckoning, his crimes are exposed and his reputation in this life and the next is destroyed. Actions have consequences. Right. Even the actions of great men, this is a really a powerful message, especially in a world where powerful men increasingly seem beyond the reach of justice. Yes. And I think one of the most compelling things to consider when examining the idea of choice and what yeah. choices mean is the fact that, well— you're not the only one making choices. Right. Everyone around you is making choices too. And the most gut-wrenching thing about Toy Story still, the reason that it stuck with all of us through yeah. all these years, is what if the choice that someone else makes is that they don't want you anymore. Right. They don't love you. They don't need you. You're not a part of their reality. And sometimes that choice can be active. 
I don't want this anymore. Right. And sometimes, and this is almost more agonizing, is that the choice is so passive, it's not even conscious. Right. You just, just forget. move on. On with the course of your life. And again, there's that idea of being forgotten, this through line, which is like, again, you're going to say this is a kid's story. What is more sort of haunting and heavy to consider than that? Does your life mean anything if nobody around you cares or wants to be with you or wants to think about you? You know, having your photo on an ofrenda, having someone pick you up off their shelf, it's all the same thing. It's somebody choosing to care about you. And when that is ripped away from you, there's not a lot else left in life that makes up for it. That brings us to enlightenment. Cheerful note there. Yeah, wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a dark place, guys. That brings us to enlightenment and Coco once again and Finding Nemo. An awakening or dawning of comprehension is really something that is crucial to these films. We've used the word perspective a lot. Already, And that's because it's such an ingrained part of any coming-of-age story. How can you grow and change if you're never enlightened? How can you become enlightened if you're never exposed to new ideas, new realities? Miguel never stops fighting for what he wants, what he believes, but his approach changes as his scope of not only his family members' past experiences, but the entire universe, the nature of reality, widens. Is Dante just a street dog? No. He's a spirit guide, my dude. Fucking love Dante. A beautiful winged spirit guide. So stop being a dick to him. Is the Rivera family's Dia de los Muertos tradition something Miguel can justify skipping out on when he's feeling misunderstood? No. It's literally a bridge between worlds, a gesture of love and a token of remembrance that allows someone else's life force to carry on. No one's sneaking off to the plaza after learning that, right? (laughs) I hope not. That realization carries some weight. There's stakes after that, guys. Miguel (laughs) never wanted to live the life his family wanted him to live, but that's not totally what the movie's about. He can't live the life he lived before. You can't. When you discover that the afterlife is real, your ancestors live on there because of your actions in this world. You can't go on as as things were before. And now that he knows so much more about the world, he has to change his life. And as with Up, Coco reminds us that enlightenment continues just as empathy is is gained through time. There's no expiration date on awakenings, though it may feel like that sometimes – your life is calcifying around you. Imelda amended a position that defined generations of life for her family because Miguel helped her see things differently. And crucially, she amended that position after her life was over. Yes. Even Hector finally armored with clarity about the nature of his death and De La Cruz's betrayal changes his approach. He was fighting to get back before, yeah, but out of fear and desperation, and while those might be among the most powerful motivations in life, yep. or, and it turns out in this case, death, even they can't compare to the power of love. For Hector, Miguel isn't just a path to being remembered. He's a path to being remembered by the person Hector was so worried about not being present for, his daughter. And the person he wrote that song, Remember Me For, and the scenes of him in the past singing uh. the song to Coco, paired with the scene of Miguel singing it to her as a wizened old woman in a chair. Truly heartbreaking stuff. Let's chat just briefly a bit more about this is light stuff. Let's light it up. Can we light Light it up? Light it up at the end here. The looming specter of death. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Just that. You know, it is, (laughs) it's important to acknowledge this truth, which is, Enlightenment is not always pleasant. No. It is not. And in Finding Nemo, father and son 
Marlon and Nemo, they both learn about the world through tragedy. Yes. As we all do. Quote, unquote, kids movie. Hey. Marlon's family is ripped away from him. And his desperation to protect Nemo, the one piece of his family that's left, is so fierce that he actually ends up pushing his son away. And of course, this is also a very human, very common thing. You sort of become your own worst enemy, even if your intentions and motivations are pure. Sometimes, though, you only confront your own behavior and the patterns in your own life when something awful forces you to. Nemo? He thinks he's hot shit. Yeah. You know? He's like, I don't need you. I don't need you fussing over me, Dad. And while gaining agency, as we have discussed, is a crucial part of coming of age, it can at times run hand in hand with hubris. And it's important to acknowledge that protection is not always misguided. And only when that protection is stripped away does Nemo really come to understand how vast... The world really is. Yeah. You know, he was born into the understanding that tragedy can tear a life apart and that fairness can sometimes be a fairy tale. But he also had his reef and he had his field trips and he had the rhythms of his life. And when those rhythms are stripped away and he is suddenly in captivity, he comes to understand and to value so much more about the world and about the motivations that drive people, including his father, whether those motivations are negative or positive and whether the implications are negative or positive. You know, context matters. Life does not play out in a vacuum. And gaining that perspective leads to enlightenment, and enlightenment can transform the entire course of your life. Well, Jason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This place, this podcast— Runs on memories. It really does. Beautiful golden memories. <laughs> no blue here. No, none at all. At least not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and Pixar's advertising push for Coco hinged in large part on one framing device, which was from the bottom of the ocean to the depths of space, mm-hmm. Disney and Pixar have taken you to every world. Dramatic pause. Dun, dun, dun. Except the next one. That's right. Now. That the next one bit is, of course, in reference to Miguel's journey to the land of the dead. But it's really hard not to focus on the taking you to every world part of that. Because, of course, that is not true. There are numerous worlds and numerous ways of life that Pixar hasn't visited at all. And that is part of what makes Coco so significant. It's Pixar's first Latino-centric story built around the traditions of Dia de los Muertos and other aspects of Mexican culture. And it is beautiful. It is so beautiful that it can't help but increase our already very present longing for more diverse storytelling. So please help us build those memories and those ambitions. Please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Or maybe grab your instrument and head to the Plaza de la Cruz. Let's go. Okay. To enlighten us further about the history and hopefully the future of representation in Pixar films. Last week, our colleague Shea Serrano noted New York Times best-selling author, the guy who tells you to shoot your shot, leader of the fuck out of here army, wrote about the nervousness he felt watching the rollout for Coco and the stakes the movie had in a piece called Pixar's Coco thankfully meets its high expectations. He wrote, quote, the little boy, 
talking about Miguel, and everyone else is Latino. And what's more, they are A, Latino, while B, in a movie that is being presented not as a backdoor totem, but as a very real, very legit, potentially canonizable entry into the Pixar universe. Think on it like this. We have been saying for so long that our stories, too, deserve to be told and celebrated and accepted. If, when finally given the opportunity to do so in a big-budget movie meant for worldwide consumption, that story turned out to be boring and lifeless and unimaginative and uninteresting, that would be a very real critical blow. It would be a disaster, for real. It would be the worst possible thing. It would be the reason for those in charge to say, see, told you, now bugger off, little brown people, scurry away back to your Knights of Columbus halls for your quinceaneras, end quote. This is an important and trenchant point, especially today in a world where America seems to be gazing backwards to a time when people of color, anyone who's really not a straight white dude, were pushed to the margins of any kind of narrative or ability to participate in the culture at large. Pixar's house style then really is something of a double-edged sword when it comes to the issue of diversity and representation. On the one hand, the studio's computer-generated graphics allow for an unparalleled aesthetic freedom. Pixar's characters can be anyone or anything, and their settings of their films can be yawningly quotidian or jaw-droppingly fantastical and anywhere in between, sometimes in the same scene. On the other hand, if Pixar is capable of making movies about characters of any gender or ethnicity, why then, with notable exceptions, haven't their films been more diverse? I think about the burgeoning esports scene in a similar way. Esports athletes play video games, thus none of the gender-based physical issues which govern traditional sports would seem to be a problem here. A female gamer can click a mouse as fast as a male gamer can. So why are there essentially no integrated esports teams? The answer to both questions is really excruciatingly simple. It's misogyny. It's these old structures that define the fabric of our life transferred into these areas. With Coco, writer-director Lee Unkrich, who is white, took strides to ensure that his film depicted its characters and settings in a responsible way. He said, quote, The Latino community is a very vocal, strongly opinionated community. With me not being Latino myself, I knew that this project was going to come under heavy scrutiny. Aside, let's be charitable and assume that even if Ungridge and Pixar were making a film about a community that wasn't as numerous or vocal as the Latino community, they would still approach the subject matter with the requisite amount of care and cultural respect. Let's hope. Let's hope that. Ungridge knew because the project did, in fact, come under heavy scrutiny, particularly after Disney lawyers in 2013 attempted to trademark the film's working title, Dia de los Muertos. The ensuing backlash shook Pixar like, okay, this is not a one-to-one example, but imagine a Canadian company trying to trademark the 4th of July. Right. (laughs) Imagine the outcry there, resulting in a production that was more transparent and respectful of the culture from which its material was gleaned. Latino Pixar employees acted as sounding boards. An array of cultural consultants advised the production on everything from art design, music, Plot, story points, and the attention showed in the final product. Shay again, quote, Coco, it certainly seems, was built by people who wanted to make a movie that relied 0% on going, hey, look at these wacky non-white people doing wacky non-white people things. Isn't it strange? And 100% on going, hey, look at people doing things. Isn't it great? Which is always the best way to handle things. It's good and grand and smart and vibrant. And we get to say all of those things without a Latino qualifier in it, like how nobody said anything like Inside Out really delivered for a white film, end quote. The point about that qualifier is really cutting. The white male experience in America is the default setting. Let's talk about The Walking Dead, which is a show I don't like, but I have watched in my life. (laughs) When Glenn, Stephen Young, was killed off, 
I was saddened, not just because I really liked the character, but because I knew due to the dearth of roles in television movies for Asian dudes, I wasn't sure when I was going to see this guy again. He's currently the voice of Wingspan on Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, which basically proves my point. Right. It's not him. He's the voice of a character. If a film centered on non-straight white male characters flops or an even is, is just a middling success, it may be years before we see a similar film get made. Brave, released in 2012, gave us Pixar's first movie with a human female lead. It told the story of Merida, a teenage princess in medieval Scotland, a skilled archer. She refuses to follow the ancient traditions of her homeland and allow herself to be married against her wishes to the son of one of her father's allies. But even here... The issue of representation is complex. Brenda Chapman, who is developing Brave and is still the only woman to co-direct a film for Pixar, was fired and the production was then handed to a man. Pixar has been making features since 1995. The studio should be lauded for its recent efforts to diversify. But we shouldn't ignore the lateness of the hour, especially in a medium which, as we noted, is not beholden to the same casting strictures that regular films are. And the paucity of the studio's black characters, Sam Jackson's Frozone and The Incredibles is basically it, should not escape criticism. And of course, it's important to note that diversity takes many forms, not just the ones mentioned here. The problem, after all, is structural. As Rashida Jones, who left production of Toy Story 4 over philosophical issues, noted in a recent interview, Pixar is, quote, a culture where women and people of color do not have an equal creative voice, as is demonstrated by their director demographics. Out of the 20 films in the company's history, only one was co-directed by a woman and only one was directed by a person of color, end quote. We have to be able to find the balance between applauding what yes. they achieved with this and still saying, why isn't there more? Right. Why hasn't this been better? What's coming next? It's right. not enough to say this was an achievement. You're good now. Right. What's next? Mal. Yeah. There's something that makes me different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the good news is that this segment is still mostly the same. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse, the winner of the Land of the Dead talent show and ensuing ticket to De La Cruz's dope party. He's a murderer, by the way. Party still looked fun. Is Miguel Rivera. Miguel. Shouts to Miguel. Truly talented. Well, first of all, as we mentioned, self-taught musician, mm -hmm. a truly talented guy. Great pipes. Built his own guitar, survived a fall, yes, in the afterlife, off a tower, a Bran-esque fall, we must say. <laughs> Shouts to Dante and Pepita. Jamie and Cersei would have been truly screwed if you'd have been win at Winterfell to save Bran's life. <laughs> Honorable mention to Dante. I voted the for, I have Dante voted for Dante. Dante is awesome. Like, Dante's great. Not uh, enough time talking about Dante on this podcast. This is, by the way, like another another Pixar move. They always have some kind of animal character that is a companion to the main character. In Wally, it was the Roach, this character that no matter what gives our hero unconditional love. Major shouts for his form on guitar, the thrum when he first steals it from the tomb. A really thrilling moment. He <laughs> takes De La Cruz's guitar down off the wall and. With almost a Pete Townsend windmill move, strums at once. The sound of the guitar reverberates through the tomb, through the theater, really, kicking up the marigold pedals and transporting him to another world. Really incredible. Great singer, as we said. I would like to compliment Miguel on his keen insights, too. Yes. You know, he's a, he's a bit of a scholar, a bit of a philosopher, and... Definitely his greatest insight is he's looking around and just drinking in the fact that the afterlife is real, that these skeletons are walking and right. talking. Thought it might have been one of those made-up things that adults tell kids, like vitamins. <laughs> Great stuff. And then he's quick on his feet. When he returns home, he had lost 
Hector's photograph. How is he going to remind the world, remind Coco of her father? He sings to her, allowing Hector and Imelda and Coco to reunite as a family in the land of the dead, and also opening his living family's eyes to the power of music, its importance in the world beyond the tragedies that have befallen the family. He gave them clarity and peace and comfort while also getting the W. That took so much courage. It really It would have been so easy to just collapse and say, that was scary. I almost turned into a skeleton, got thrown off of a tower. Right. Dante turned a lot of neon colors. Right. Now I'm back in the world of the living. I can just forget that. They were right. I was wrong. This was too much. But he doesn't do any of that. He still pursues the thing that he cares about most. He refuses to give up. He refuses to accept that time is running out or that he's been defeated. It's really incredible. Perseverance. What a thing. Jason. Yes. Never underestimate the power of music and never underestimate the power of religion because it is time to head to the set to bathe in the light of the seven. We're going to do this This a little differently. We're going to share seven of the things that we're most excited about right now or that we're most looking forward to this week, not Coco or Pixar specific, just in the world. Things that we're excited about. We're still going to do it lightning round style. You go first. What's number one? The game Skyrim, which has been ported to the Nintendo Switch. I haven't been playing a lot of video games lately, Mal. I've been kind of busy, but this Thanksgiving break, I managed to get in a good six to eight solid hours Listen, anytime I can be a wizard who can shoot fire and ice out of my fingertips and I can do that portably from the back of a lift that is taking me from our wonderful movie outing, I'm down for that. Great game on a great console. I highly recommend it. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. Sounds beautiful. Switch seems like a lot of fun. It's really great. It really does seem like a lot of fun. You should play one. I'd love to. I'd love to. Number two. College football playoff selection show. I am very excited about Championship Saturday and and even Championship Friday because there's a game on Friday. Looking at all you, (laughs) Sam Darnold heads out there. Palo, what's up? Wow. I'm a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've got the Georgia-Auburn rematch in the SEC title game. That's going to be, I think, much more competitive than the recent bloodbath between those two teams. We have TCU-Oklahoma for the Big 12 crown. That's going to be one of our last precious chances to watch Baker Mayfield play college football. Love Baker Mayfield. And of course, number fucking one, Clemson. How did this happen? How is Clemson number one again? Takes the field, providing a fresh chance for me to embarrass myself by predicting a Tigers defeat, so that's always fun. But... While I'm looking forward to the games, I am most excited for the announcement of the 14 playoff field, and that is Sunday morning, mm-hmm. 9 o'clock our time out here on the Pacific Coast. Can Alabama make it Can after they? losing in the Iron Bowl? This is really the, like one of the driving questions in my life right now, other than <laughs> when will Bay Cities be back on Postmates? Wow. Well, for that to happen, specifically so that I can eat the food while watching football. The Tide are sitting at number five right now in the newest ranking, and that is, I think they're sitting pretty there because. While there's basically no chance that they make it over whoever wins the SEC title game, they just need a two-loss champion in one of the other leagues. Can the Horn Frogs knock off the Sooners? Can the Buckeyes knock off the undefeated Badgers? Does any logical question or prognostication method matter in a season totally defined by chaos? Probably not, and that's part of the fun, so right. roll damn tide. I am not an Alabama fan. Yes, you are. Come no, on. I'm not. <laughs> you love dominance. You love dynasty. I love a dynasty. Therefore. Love a dynasty. You're kind of an Alabama fan. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Number three, Ladybird. Mm. We saw this as the back end of a double feature Saturday that started with Coco. Emotional few hours there. <laughs> this is a harrowing few hours for sure. I think we were both struck by how similar the themes of, of the films were. Both yes. deal with questions of choice, of agency, of the difference between selfishness and individualism with the relationship between a child and in this case, her parents and and the differing goals that they have and how those things overlap. It was so good on the kind of mercenary nature of high school friendship and the oh way God. that friends can be cast aside when a person feels like they have a chance to move up the social ladder. And fear how, of being forgotten. The fear there it is again. And how those things really cause pain throughout throughout the rest of your life. It's truly a great movie. Go see it. Loved it. Loved it. Number four, more Black Mirror trailers. I'm really Love excited for this Black Mirror moment that we're in. Season four of Black Mirror is imminent. Yes. We do not have a definitive release date yet, at least at the time of Feel recording soon. this. But we know that it's supposed to be 2017, so there's really not much time left when it can actually <laughs> so, go up. It's right. got to be close. And we now not only have a teaser trailer for the entire season, but we have episode-specific trailers for two of the six upcoming installments. It is close. Yes. And I just want to say that I cannot wait to watch these episodes and discuss them with you. I'm so excited. I sort of think about Black Mirror the way I think about pizza and donuts, which Mm. is that even when it's bad, it's still good. Like a maple bar. (laughs) Love a maple (laughs) bar. And when it's great, it can be life-altering. It's truly, truly crushing when it's great. Unbelievable. You know, when this show at its best, it, it really makes us think and feel more than like all but a handful of other cultural creations and you know season three San Junipero was I think our favorite non-Game of Thrones episode of television of 2016 and life-altering unbelievable I cannot wait to see what Black Mirror brings us next number five Ted Chang's short story collection The Story of Your Life and Others Story of Your Life is the short story that became Arrival the movie Arrival. There's some really, really, really cool stories in there, including Tower of Babylon, which is about a infinitely tall tower that workmen have to climb up in an attempt to get to heaven and understand, which is kind of like, imagine a limitless drug, but one that makes you so smart you can't help but become a supervillain. That's the one I'm reading right now, and it's it's really fascinating. I'm reading it between reading another book, which I'll speak about at number seven. Number six, Disaster Artist. Jason, you've seen this movie seen already, it. It and great. I just frankly don't like not being able to talk about things that you like with you, so I feel compelled to see this as quickly as possible, and I have not seen The Room. I have not read The Disaster Artist, mm-hmm. but I consider myself, you know, something of a, a Franco Brothers scholar. How do you feel about An the enthusiast. Tell me about the Franco Brothers quickly. Handsome. Nice. That's all I got. <laughs> do you have a, is there one that you prefer over uh, the other? James, of course. Okay. Yeah. But I like Dave. <laughs> It's fine. So I'm all in on this. I'm looking forward to it. Number seven. Um, they say seven is the most powerfully magical number. Yeah, I've heard that. I'm reading this book called The Chamber of Secrets. Mm. I'm on the last chapter. You know, I'm just reading it really just for my own personal growth. <laughs> yeah. To reacquaint myself with one of the great tales of our time, one of the great fictional worlds of recent memory, and, and some of the greatest, truly some of the greatest characters in literary history. I mean that. Snape is one of the greatest characters ever brought into the world. He is my favorite. Do you think we'll ever get a chance to talk about this? I think we will in spring of 2018. Wonderful. I can't wait. Tell Tom Riddle I said, what's up? (laughs) All right, friends. Yeah. We have to binge. That's right. We have to record the podcasts. They're not just 
in us. That's right. They are us. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you were as excited as we are for Binge Mode Harry Potter shooting through the flu network in spring 2018. That's right. And obviously, we hope that you will join us again next Thursday for the second installment of Binge Mode Weekly. Shouts to Isaac Lee and Jason Cahill for helping us put this together and get going again. And until we're back with you next week, remember, the rest of the world may follow the rules, but we must follow the binge. Yeah! Actually, you should just sing this. What? Yes, sing it. Take it once by yourself. Take it once by yourself. All right. Remember us when you feel the need to binge. Remember us when your life becomes unhinged. For when you want. That's high. For when you wonder where it is that makes this world so sweet. Just listen to this podcast and life will be complete. Remember us. Isaac! Binge underscore mode. That was incredible. (laughs) Wow. Written by Jason Cahill, performed by Isaac Lee. Uh.